Welcome to Tales from the Edge, the podcast series of dangerous, terrifying, and even life-threatening events that are sure to leave a man scared to death. The reader of these tales, John Burnett, has a CV that reads like an adventure thriller. He has advised a President of the United States. He was head writer of a CBS soap opera. He has written frequently for the New York Times. And on a more adventurous note, he was captain of a fishing boat in Alaska, has sailed single-handedly across oceans, and served as a relief worker for the United Nations. He has also been attacked by pirates in the South China Sea and lived through a face-off with a child soldier holding a loaded gun in Somalia. He has also published a few books, just to name a few career highlights. I think this man has pissed himself in fear more times than I've had breakfast. And this episode will take you sky high. You know, our lives are filled with lessons that uh, we should have learned. We hear often of what we should have done and what we shouldn't have done. Some lessons you get a chance to learn only once. Well, here's a lesson that I hope I don't have to learn again. You don't want to piss off the guy who's packing your parachute. It started with a dare. I don't think I've ever turned down a dare. When the challenge is made, I'll accept it. I figure if they can do it, I can do it. But sometimes it's better to walk away. One time I didn't, and it almost got me killed. It was one evening years ago, somewhat out of touch through some five-star ganja, that I reluctantly accepted his challenge. We were sitting cross-legged in my apartment in Georgetown, knocking back the last of a bottle of Boone's Farm and a bag of Oreos. Peter gazed through our smoke and dreamily spoke of the sensation of gliding across the earth under a parachute. Ah, he said, the caress of a gentle breeze as we drift gracefully to the ground. I knew it was coming next. So? So, let's do it. Do what? Let's go skydiving. You gotta be crazy. I'm not jumping out of no airplane. Now, I had known Peter since high school. He had been a bright student, but he had some pretty wild ideas, one of which got him finally kicked out of school. We had met up some years later when we were in our mid-twenties. I was working on Capitol Hill in Washington, and Peter until recently had been working on a lobbying firm, a high-paid salesman trying to influence members of Congress. He was a cynic, and he was doomed. He was sacked for not taking his job seriously enough. He was a good-looking guy, gallant cavalry mustache and quick, dark eyes. You might even call him a ladies' man. As a kid, I sort of looked up to him. I remember one night we were skiing in Vermont and zipping down an icy black piste when we heard a scream from above. Peter managed to get up to the fallen skier, lift her into his arms, and speed down to the lodge where the girl was taken to the hospital. They married a few weeks later. He was the sort of guy who never thought of consequences. Peter had a rather skewed sense of humor, frequently wisecracking, and I could have anticipated that his smart mouth could land us into trouble. Might even have been responsible for what turned out to be such a terrifying day. 
I mean, he said, haven't you ever thought about it, what it would be like to go skydiving? No, not in a million years. I had seen that challenging look before. And fly! He jumped up, his arms outstretched like a bird, and pirouetted and zoomed through the room, knocking over the bottle of apple wine. Well, you never pass as a bird, Peter. Fly, Jono, let's fly! Actually, I had thought about it. I don't know if you've ever had a dream that keeps coming back, but I had. As a child, I woke up many times having pulled myself out of a nightmare. I saw myself falling from great heights, an endless plunge into a conquering darkness, and in my dream I heard only my own silent screams as I thrashed in panic, trying to stop my fall. The plunge through the endless depths was far worse than the instant oblivion of slamming into whatever was at the bottom. But as I grew older, the nightmares occurred less frequently, and I finally mastered the control to realize that these were only just bad dreams. I could wake up myself from the fall. Today, I'm not afraid of heights. I have no fear of flying. I have stood on the lip of a ledge overlooking the canyon below and, and wondering if there wasn't some stronger power within that could force me to lean just a little more forward. Peter's challenge of jumping out of an airplane was one that I needed to confront. So I shrugged, nodded, and yeah, sure, why not? What was there to lose? He said he'd heard about a skydiving club nearby, and let's go skydiving. A couple days later, we drove down a rutted farm road in the early morning hours to a skydiving club in eastern Maryland. Fog clung to the uh, road, making driving difficult, and trees brooded above us lining the way, and privately I thought the weather would cancel the flights. And yet, privately, I hoped that it wouldn't. I wasn't going to chicken out of this. The club advertised a complete lesson, first jump included for only 50 bucks. This was at a time when recreational skydiving was still in its early days. This is a time before buddy tandem jumping, before steerable parachutes, before wrist-mounted altimeter gauges and helmet radios and pilot chutes. It was also before the tight rules and regulations that today govern the sport. The parachutes of the time were the kind you'd see in some World War II movie. When deployed, they blossom out into large, round, white canopies that evoked airdrops of troops landing behind enemy lines. Our equipment was, in fact, army surplus. The office of the skydiving school stood as an isolated old farmhouse next to a cornfield in front of a grass airstrip. The wood planking of the building was weather-stained and gray, and a window under the eaves was partially opened and yellow curtains flapped out in the breeze. All the other windows were boarded out. The place looked almost abandoned, almost like it was haunted. A faded hand-painted sign hung crookedly by a single nail over the door, announcing Eastern Shore Skydiving Club. Parked next to the building was a burnt-out carcass of a small, single-engine, high-wing Cessna. This was hardly inspiring to those who intended to jump from one. A few cars and motorcycles were parked nearby. On the runway side of the house, two guys about our age, and a solid figure of a man in military fatigues, waited impatiently in front of a picnic table. We were the last to arrive. I sent someone watching and looking, looked up at the window, and the ghostly, undefined figure, its face hidden by the shadows, moved the yellow curtains aside and looked down upon the new arrivals, just wondering what we were going to do, chicken out or go ahead. 
Ah, here they are, barked the jump instructor. Finally, I was going to begin without you. Now, introduce yourselves and let's get going. Square jaw, bald head, cool gray eyes, a Delta Force face. He wore his smile like a frown. This was a man to respect. This was a man to listen to, and this was definitely a man to obey. He let us know he had tested equipment for the Navy SEALs, had made 2,000 freefall jumps, had served in Vietnam. He approached seven feet, weighed in about 250 pounds, and had hands the size of frying skillets. Into those arms our lives we place. Ah, Herr Oberjumpmeister, Peter muttered. I thought it was an unnecessary thing to say. The guy hadn't done anything to us yet. It would not be the first time this day that Peter's mouth might get us into trouble. The instructor's eyes shot up at Peter. A blue vein stood up on his forehead. And just as quickly, then he turned his attention to a small plane that circled overhead. He seemed a little more relaxed now. Cavu, he said out of the side of his mouth. Ceiling and visibility is unlimited. Good, perfect. You see? From out of the side door, one skydiver after another flew himself out of the plane and into space. Their canopies opened smartly, and each jumper floated down to earth. It looked so easy, I was almost glad I was going to do it. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. The skydiving course was worryingly simple, but then what do you expect for 50 bucks? There were no aerodynamic theories, no background or history. Not much mentioned at all, except mostly hour after hour of mounting and leaping off a wobbly picnic table, practicing what to do when hitting the ground. PLFs are called parachute landing falls. Jumpers injure themselves when they land, twist, or break their ankles, it was explained. And that, people, said the instructor, is the worst that can happen to a skydiver. In fact, he was smiling now, Skydiving is less dangerous than crossing a highway during rush hour. Huh? Did Oberjump really say that, mumbled Peter? The man's expression, at once pleased with his twisted sense of humor, turned dark. He swung toward Peter and jabbed a thick finger in his face. You, 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 you. Jesus, Pete, I said, you don't want to piss off the guy who's packing your chute. No, you don't, Oberjump said, smiling through clenched teeth. Peter and I exchanged looks and wondered if it wasn't too late to get back into the car. Oberjump ordered me onto the table. You will now see yourself floating through the sky to your drop zone. This was his narration of what we were to expect as we were falling. Go! And with perilous abandon, I flung myself off the make-believe airplane. The ground is getting closer, he said, and closer. It's coming up at you. The ground is hard, like cement. Here it comes, and pow! He slammed a fist onto the table. I landed on solid ground, a dizzying four feet below, twisting and rolling safely back on earth. Assured that four, of us, four out of the six hours learning to properly spring from a tabletop was important, each of us stood on the table and upon go, 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 launched ourselves into the dirt over and over again. Is that all there is? Donning heavy military coveralls, we paraded out to the charred carcass of the burned-out Cessna. You won't be pulling the ripcord on your mane, the jump instructor said. Your mane is connected to a static line, and that's attached to the jump plane, and your chute will automatically deploy as you jump. You will stand on that, you kick the wheel of the plane, and you will lean against that. 
and he grabbed hold of the plane's wing strut. On signal, we were to push ourselves away in an arch, arms and legs outstretched, soar through the sky like an eagle. The small plane that had disgorged its skydivers landed and taxied up to our group, its nose and propeller staring us down and waiting and challenging. We'll pack your chutes, strap you up, and then you can get up there, said the jumpmaster. He pulled four loose and previously used chutes from a canvas bag, spread them out on the grass, and began to tuck them into their backpacks. He packed quickly and with some confidence. It was with some timidity that uh, I asked, by the way, are you a certified instructor? There is, after all, blind faith, and there is stupidity, and I was not certain which I was choosing. He stopped, looked up, clenched his teeth with barely controlled patience, and I'm wondering how careful he is packing my parachute. Peter and I stood waiting. Well, not actually certified for skydiving, he admitted finally, but certified in the service. I've done this hundreds of times. Second nature. I always pack a chute as if I were going to use it myself. I'm packing you this time, but after your jump, I'll show you how to do it. It was sort of the kind of comfort that uh, one gets when buying a used car. He placed the chutes onto the table before us. Peter was given a newer-looking one, and mine looked rather worn and ratty. In what seemed like a sudden afterthought, Oberjump picked up a smaller package off the table. This, gentlemen, is your reserve, your emergency chute. You can see it is smaller than the regulation parachute, and you will strap it around your front against your chest. Your main chute, of course, will be on your back. You will not have to use your reserve today. It is here, gentlemen, in case you have a malfunction. He was staring us down, waiting for us to ask, Well, I think you people would want to know what a malfunction is. Yes, sir, we all shouted as one. There is the streamer, when the chute never inflates, never opens. The May West, when the lines of your parachute lope over the top and cutting it in half and looking like a bra. And then there's the granddaddy of them all, when the chute never leaves your backpack. In these circumstances, you may deploy your reserve. And one day, he allowed, you may just want to shake it out, let it air, and get the cobwebs out. You mean let it air like when we're falling? No, I mean just to see what it looks like on the ground. So how does it work if we just wanted to air it out if we have a malfunction, asked Peter. With forced patience and a stifled bark, when you push yourself away from the aircraft, count five seconds. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. Well, you know the drill. Your main chute will deploy almost immediately. Look up at your chute, and if it has not deployed properly after five seconds, then it's time to use the reserve. The process for the reserve is very simple, people. Unclip the main chute and let it fall away. Then pull the ripcord of the reserve with your right hand, and you punch your fist into the bottom of the open bag and grab the chute and shake it out like you're shaking laundry. The wind will catch it and it will deploy and you will land safely. If there is a malfunction, just remember to unclip this main chute from the harness. Then go to your reserve chute. And remember, and this is very important, people, remember... Pull, punch, pull, and shake. Masking our fears, we hopped around the table reciting, 
pull, punch, pull, and shake, pull, punch, pull, and shake. The man cast such a hard look at that our chorus petered out with the exception of one of the guys who was left to conclude the chant alone. His solo voice faded away under the stern glare of our instructor. The time we spent on the reserve shoot instruction and practice was no more than ten minutes, so we all figured he had to be confident to spend so little time on such matters as this. As Oberjump explained the use of the reserve, I picked up the newer main chute, the one that was probably meant for Peter. We strapped on our chutes, main and back, reserve in front, slipped on our crash helmets, and with all the grace of pregnant penguins, we waddled after the instructor to the awaiting plane. Oberjump chose the two other guys in our class for the first run, and together with two experienced club members, they squeezed the board. Our instructor went off toward a tree and had a piss, and Peter and I sat on the grass as the plane turned and taxied out to the airstrip. I don't have a real good feeling about this, Peter said quietly. Nervous? Scared shitless. It surprised me. I thought I was the only one scared to death. Well, Peter, we could always back out. I guess I was looking to him for some guidance. Peter looked like that was the last thing he was going to do. No way. I'm not copping out. But I got a real bad feeling, like a premonition. I don't like it. I don't trust that dude. Well, he's got the credentials. Yeah, sure, so he says. Overjump returned, and together we looked up at the plane that had reached altitude. One jumper fell out of the aircraft, then another. Their large white chutes popped open as they drifted downward toward the drop zone. The aircraft circled again and flipped out the last two skydivers. The last jumper appeared to be on target until a gust of wind lifted him up and sent him off toward telephone and electric lines. He landed safely in an adjacent cornfield on the other side of the road. The second jumper? He seemed to free-fall longer than the others until his chute finally opened. I suppose it was one of the veterans of the club showing off. The last jumper, one of the students, touched down with only a few feet of the painted circular drop zone. It wasn't because he had learned his lesson well. With the normal 8-mile-per-hour forward speed and the 12-mile-an-hour descent, he zipped in at a very fast clip, landing on his ass. The uncontrolled landing on his heels was hard and without control. He picked himself up, gathered in a chute, and walked back to where we were waiting, embarrassed but uninjured. His chute had been packed backwards. The Cessna circled back down onto the runway, and the three of us and a jumper we had seen before clambered aboard. The new guy was looking first at Peter, and then at me, a very weird expression on his face, very intense. Crammed like tin fish, Overdump shouted above the whine of the engine, I'm jumping you at 3,000 feet. And how high is the first jump usually? I shouted back. 2,500? I think I'd rather jump from 25. Safer from three. That didn't make much sense to me. There was no door, only the opening in the side of the fuselage through which we were to step out. We were supposed to step onto the locked wheel and then lean against the wing strut and then throw ourselves out of the small plane. The runway sped by underneath, replaced by open fields, treetops, houses that grew smaller and smaller, and in the distance, the Patuxent River. The aircraft crossed over the drop zone, and the guy who had come along stepped toward the door. He grabbed hold of the sides and leaned out. He turned to us grimly and shook his head. That's strange. What, what, what sign of what? Regret? Doubt? Sadness? 
I don't want to do this, he screamed. And with a terrifying shriek, he threw himself out of the plane and disappeared. We said nothing, holding our breaths. Peter and I exchanged looks. What the hell just happened? Finally, our instructor laughed. <laughs> the kid's one of our members. He does that all the time for the new guys. Oh, so he wasn't jumping to his death. The Cessna began its turn, and the instructor tapped Peter on the leg. Gamely, Peter went out to the opening of the plane, leaned out to grab the wing strut, and stepped out onto the locked wheel. He looked over at me, his face distorted by the airflow of the aircraft speed, yet we were able to exchange mutual looks of absolute terror. Was he really going to do it? I wanted to pull him back. What are we doing up here? Our instructor leaned out and tapped Peter on the shoulder. Go, 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 go! And Peter pushed himself away, and Oberjump leaned out of the plane and watched Peter fall. A few moments later, he turned to me. An odd look. Good, there he goes. He sounded relieved. Peter's chute burst open, jerking him upright, and he began an easy descent toward the ground. Your friend had a little delay. A delay? He's okay. Your jump, ready? I took my position at the doorway. Out now. I'm convinced that the first moment a new jumper stands out on the wheel and leans against the wing strut, looks down, to the moment he pushes himself away, he is in another world, a temporary state of unmitigated lunacy. I recall standing on that wheel, leaning forward against the strut, the wind from the aircraft's speed preventing me from a full natural breath. I stared at the ground so far below that I thought ridiculously, if I let go, I'll fall. The instructor stood inside and was gesturing impatiently for me to jump. He was getting upset. I don't have to do this just because he wants me to. But I did push myself off and away, and not a mark of courage, but the submission to his orders, and to that insanity, barely controlled. Dropping through the air, spread eagle at first, I count. One one thousand, two one thousand, three... Oh. Aren't we to keep spread eagle until the chute opens? Yet my body turns quickly, heads up, and I am falling feet first. Looking up at the receding plane, I see the instructor lean out the door, making monkey-like motions with his hands. I look up at my chute. It's not there. Not a parachute deployed, but a rat's nest of nylon and cord, just a tight ball following me down. I react neither in shock or surprise. I look up at this mess above me as if outside of reality, almost as an interested observer. I know with some certainty I am just dreaming. I had dreamed this before, and I always woke up. Just another bad dream. The slight arch of the horizon begins to flatten. Before me, under me, the ground grows ever closer. It's coming up at me, fast. It's in an instant I realize that this is no dream. I can't wake myself up. My parachute is not going to open. I am falling to my death. And there's nothing to slow me, to stop me. Wake up, wake up. Change the channels. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Anything. I twist my head frantically from side to side, looking for an escape. Get me the hell out of here. I feel the blood in my face and the cramp in my loosening gut, and I jerk at the lines to the tangle above me, trying to lift myself out of there. Yet there is nothing that can stop my fall. And those things that look so tiny from 3,000 feet 
The trees, the houses, even the bullseye target of the drop zone are now growing larger by the second. Jesus, cars are pulling off the side of the road, and a thunderous roar of air rushing past me is deafening, and yet my fall seems timeless, unbroken. I'm just falling and falling, and I don't know if I hear of any sound at all. There must be something I can grab hold on, some place I can climb into, a bed I can climb into. I flail helplessly, desperately in panic, arms and legs swinging wildly like a tumbling moth that's getting too close to the flame. I claw at the lines above me. I pull my legs up, thinking that maybe somehow I can miss the ground. The ground seems almost at my feet, and I know I'm going to hit it. There's got to be a way. People are getting out of their cars, watching the skydiver whose chute is not opening. Others are running to a point near the drop zone just beneath me, shielding their eyes from the sun, looking up at my falling body. I'm not screaming, although inside I think that's all I can hear. But panic is blinding, deafening, paralyzing. I resign myself. No more struggle, no more panic. It comes on naturally with calm certitude. I can't wake myself up from dying. Not this time. I have given myself up for dead. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let this happen. I will never know what it was inside that took hold. There is that instant that we take the decision not to give up, not to succumb, not to die. There is that moment that we overcome panic, override our fatal resignation, and grab control. The reserve. As fast as it flashed into my mind, I had my hand on the ripcord and yanked. I wasn't thinking of a little jingle, and I wasn't thinking of waving laundry, and I wasn't thinking of anything at all. I wasn't even sure I knew what I was doing. It was all just instinct. With a crack of a gunshot, the reserve tore up in front of my face. The jolt flipped me upward like I had run into a brick wall. I learned later that I had been falling at what is known as terminal, 125 miles an hour, the fastest a human body can fall through the air. And suddenly, from terminal to about 20 miles an hour in an instant. The physical shock of the opening reserve jerked me up and spun me around crazily. After twisting me in one direction, it threw me in another. The garbage that was my main parachute shot down past me like a rock, tying itself around my legs. In a frenzy, I tried to bend down to reach the cords from around my feet, but the reserve chute kept me upright. I tore at the clips on top of the harness to release the dead chute and rid myself of this added weight that was now pulling me down much too fast. The clips popped off, and the mane, still knotted and tangled in its own lands, fell off. I was finally free. I swayed back and forth under the open reserve, and I think briefly I might have experienced the beauty of controlled flight, but also it was the relief and satisfaction that I had found a way to save myself. I never knew I was up to the mark. Below the mob that expected me to splash were running to the spot where I was about to land. Someone was shouting, PLFs, PLFs. What? You're landing, you're landing, watch your landing, feet together. I'd forgotten that part. The ground came up slowly and then I struck, spun around, rolled and landed on my back. I tried to get up, but collapsed. Every muscle ripped, not from a poor PLF, but from the sudden arrest of the freefall. I laid there for a few minutes, unable to get up, and watched the spectators above me muttering what could have gone wrong. Some offered congratulations, 
Cobra Jump loomed over me finally. Stopwatch in hand. You pulled your reserve at about 600 feet just in time. It's good I used a regulation parachute for your reserve. But hard landing, wasn't it? And he offered no explanation for the malfunction, and he walked off. Most of the crowd drifted away from me. They were gathering round the nearby rubble of twisted cloth and cord of the unopened chute nearby, like street people staring at an accident victim. Peter reached down, offered his hand, and tried to help me up, but my legs couldn't support me, and I collapsed again. We're going to have to get you to a hospital, he said. Later, in the car, he turned to me and said, You know, Jono, your parachute was meant for me. If you've enjoyed this tale from The Edge, subscribe and like and share. And thank you for listening.